For without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That is a quotation from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And the truth contained therein is so essential to the success of our walk with God. It is absolutely impossible to please our Father unless we have faith. And he goes on to say that it's not simple or simply the faith that God exists, although it requires that. That certainly is necessary. But it's not sufficient. We must believe that God is a God who rewards those who diligently seek Him. The implication being that if we believe that, then we ourselves will not just seek Him, but diligently seek Him. And so, to a large degree, the extent to which we are successful in our walk with God, the extent to which we are able to go to heaven and spend eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the extent to which we avoid the wrath of God is determined by just how much faith we have and what we do with that faith. And if you're talking about the subject of faith, I don't know if there's a better example of faith than the man we call Abraham. And so that's what we want to do this morning is to see if there are some lessons about faith that we can learn from the wonderful example that Abraham sets before us in the life that he lived. And before you think I just arbitrarily chose Abraham as an example of faith, might I suggest to you that in Hebrews chapter 11, commonly called the Hall of Fame of Faith, because there are all these wonderful biblical heroes who did things by faith, Abraham is listed among those heroes. And I find it interesting that not only is he mentioned one time, but he's mentioned twice. He's mentioned uh, in terms of his willingness to go out of the land of the Ur Chaldees to the land that God would show him, not knowing the details of that. And he's also mentioned in terms of his willingness to offer up his son Isaac, notwithstanding the fact that Isaac was the son of promise through whom all the promises were going to come. And so I think it is appropriate for us to study the life of this man and see if we can glean some lessons from Abraham. I want to direct your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We'll spend a lot of time there. Not all of our time there, but a lot of time there. Genesis chapter 22. And this is the incident that we referred to earlier where Abraham is called upon to offer his son Isaac. Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Let's Read, fairly lengthy reading, but a lot to be gained from doing so. Genesis chapter 22, and let us begin with verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering. He rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham's father, saying, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham, or, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him for heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there, behold, was a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What a phenomenal demonstration of faith on the part of Abraham on so many different levels. That, that God, in fact, it's told to us that God tested him by telling him that he was to take his son, the only son of promise, the son whom he loved, and offer him up for a burnt offering. In other words, to kill him and offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord. Can you imagine as a parent being told to do that? Being told to offer your own child. How you would feel about that. How difficult that would be. How challenging that would be. And then add to it not just the normal uh, parental feelings that you would have, but also add to it this knowledge that God has told you that there are some great promises coming to you and your descendants through this very son. That God has said that through this very son, he's going to make a great nation of your descendants. Through this very son, that great nation is going to occupy the promised land of Canaan. Through this great son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A reference to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You've got this information in your mind and not, notwithstanding all that, God has just told you to kill the very one through whom all these promises are going to happen. But it's interesting that Abraham does not hesitate. I've always found it interesting, I don't know about you, that when I'm told to do something, whether it be from the standpoint of uh, my wife or my workplace or whatever it may be, and I don't want to do it, there's a tendency for me to procrastinate. <laughs> just push it off a little bit. I just, I don't want to do this thing. And so I keep pushing off, pushing off, simply because I really deep down don't want to do what I'm being asked or told to do. Abraham rose early in the morning. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't hesitate. He didn't equivocate. He rose early in the morning. God told me to do something, and he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't miss a beat. He begins to do that. And there is also something else interesting about that. Remember, he gave some instructions to the young men who traveled with him and Isaac. And he said that uh, you stay here, and we're going to go. The lad and I are going to go yonder, and we will come back. We will come back. Well, wait a minute. God has told him to kill his son. Now, I understand Abraham coming back, but I don't understand. How does Isaac come back? Well, we know a little bit about that because over in Hebrews chapter 11, turn over there, verses 17 through 19, we get some biblical commentary on Abraham's frame of mind. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Hebrews the 11th chapter, verses 17 through 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Now here is how Abraham worked this thing out in his mind. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so Abraham believed that notwithstanding the fact he was going to kill his son, notwithstanding the fact he was going to offer him as a burnt offering, he believed that God would raise him from the dead and he and the lad would come back to those young men that were supposed to stay with the donkeys. Just a remarkable demonstration of faith. So what can we learn from that particular incident? Well, let me suggest to you this. The first thing we learn from the faith of Abraham is that we must act upon our faith. We must act upon our faith. It is not enough for us to know what God's will is. It's necessary, oh yes. But it's not sufficient. It's not enough for us to understand what the will of the Lord is. It's necessary, yes, absolutely. But it's not sufficient. We must act upon what we know. We must act upon what we believe. We often said that the faith that's talked about in the Bible is an obedient faith. It's not the caricature of faith that many religious people have in the world that simply says, well, as long as you believe this set of facts, as long as you believe this information, then it really doesn't matter how you live your life. It really doesn't matter how you walk with God. It really doesn't matter what your actions are and what your deeds are and what your thoughts are and what your words are. Just as long as you believe this set of information. And yet what Abraham tells us is that is not so. It wasn't sufficient For Abraham to know in his mind, well, you know, God is powerful enough that he can raise my son from the dead, but I'm not going to do what he's told me to do. (laughs) That wouldn't have been sufficient. It wouldn't have been okay for him to say, now, I know the Lord told me to do this, uh, and I know that he can work this thing out, but I just don't think I'm going to act upon that. Would, Would God have been pleased with that? Would that have been obedience? Of course not. In order for Abraham to please his God by faith, he had to act upon that faith. In other words, he had to do what God told him to do. That's a very important point that we need to get out there in the religious world. That we must act upon our faith. Faith compels us to do something. Let me talk to us for a moment. We understand that there's only one church. We've talked about that during the meeting. We understand that there is a plan of salvation that God has prescribed. We understand that baptism is a necessary part of that plan of salvation. Is it sufficient for us to come to these assemblies with that understanding, knowing there's one church, knowing there's a plan of salvation, knowing that has to be obeyed, knowing that we have to be baptized. Is it sufficient for us to come to these assemblies knowing that, reassuring us our, our, ourselves that this is true, and then we go out into the world, we go out into our schools, we go out into our workplaces, we go out into our neighborhoods, and we see all of these people who clearly don't understand that, who clearly don't understand there's one church, who clearly don't understand that there's a plan of salvation that God has demanded, who clearly don't understand that baptism is necessary for salvation, and we don't say a word to them. We don't say anything. Is that acting upon our faith? How many of us in this audience, and don't raise your hand, how many of us in this audience fall right within that bucket? We have people in our lives who don't understand what the will of the Lord is on salvation. 
Don't understand what the will of the Lord is on the church. Don't understand what the will of the Lord is on baptism. And yet we have that knowledge, we understand that knowledge, but we have not said a word to that individual. Day after day after day. You see, we, when we want to talk about an obedient faith, we have a tendency to say, well, we're talking about those religious people, people in denominations who don't understand it. Let's bring it home. Do we believe that? No, we would not say that. But what do we believe when we have that truth within our grasp? We understand it, what it means, and we sit on it, and we don't say anything to anybody. An active faith is what God requires. I mean, you look here in Hebrews 11.4. It talks about Abel by faith, what? Offered a better sacrifice than Cain. He did something based on that faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, by faith Noah prepared an ark. In other words, he did something based on that faith. And you keep going down through the hall of fame of faith and you'll see that people did things by faith. Faith must be demonstrated. Faith must be acted upon. I love James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26 on this issue. We learn from Abraham that we must act Upon our faith. We learn from Abraham that we must act upon our faith. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James, the second chapter, verses 14 through 26. The Bible says this What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Somebody will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham, here's our example, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the heart also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Is it sufficient to simply have faith? As so many people in the religious world want to say, Faith only, faith alone. What does the Holy Scripture say? He said, no. He said, faith without works is dead. He said, let's don't, let's don't be like the person who sees somebody in need. And, and you know you have the resources to address it. And rather than acting upon that awareness, acting upon that knowledge, you just say, depart, be warm, be filled, go on about your way. He said, that, that's faith without works. That doesn't do any good. We demonstrate our faith by our works. And he says, look at Abraham, which is the very thing we're doing this morning. He says, look at Abraham. 
It wasn't enough for him to say, I believe in a God that can raise people from the dead. I believe in a God that can accomplish his promises even though it looks like it's impossible. I believe in a God that can raise my son from the dead after I kill him, but I'm not going to do anything about it. (laughs) He says, no. He was justified because he was willing. Remember, he raised his hand with the knife and was about to do it until the angel said, stop. Stop. Now I know. I know that you believe me now. Faith without works is dead. But we have to ask ourselves, do we fall in the category of people who truly don't believe that faith is dead without works? If we're one of those folks who just believes what's true about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we believe what is true about the qualifications of elders. We believe what is true about the plan of salvation. We believe what is true about what uh, the, the gospel says about withdrawing from people who are walking disorderly, but we don't act upon it. <laughs> that's not sufficient. It's not enough to simply know the truth. That is, again, necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to act upon our faith. We learned that from the example of Abraham. But let me give you a second lesson we learned from the faith of Abraham. We learned from the faith of Abraham That faith means trusting God, even when you don't understand all the details of his will. Say that again. We learn from Abraham that faith means trusting God, even when you don't understand all the details of his will. Go back to Genesis 22 for a moment. I want to look at this. Genesis 22, verse 2. These are the instructions from, from God. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I want you to notice something about those instructions. They're very simple. They're very direct. But there's something missing there. Did did you notice that that God didn't say, "Now, now, now let me help you out with this, Abraham. Now, I know, I know that I told you earlier that this is the son of promise. And I know that I told you that through this son, you were going to have the descendants who would be a great nation. I know that. And I know further that I told you that through this son, those descendants were going to occupy the promised land, the land of Canaan. And I know also that I told you that through this son, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Now, let me work out for you. I know there's some apparent tension there, but here's how it's going to work. Uh, You go ahead and kill uh, Isaac. And I'm going to raise him from the dead and then he'll be alive. And all of those promises that I gave to you will go forward as you would expect. Did you notice God does none of that? (laughs) None of that. There's no explanation of how to work this thing out, right? And even, even more remarkable is Abraham doesn't ask for that explanation. He doesn't say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like a lot of us would have done. Whoa, whoa, time out, God, wait a minute. Now, this, this is the boy through whom all these blessings are going to come. And if I kill him, those blessings can't come to pass. Help me, Lord. That doesn't make sense. And I know we read over in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, that, that, that Abraham worked this thing out in his mind himself by concluding that God was able to raise him from the dead. But, but let, me, let me make this observation that I think is remarkable. Where in the biblical record up to this point in time had God raised somebody from the dead? Where where is the example that that Abraham could look to and say, okay, if God raised that person from the dead, he can raise my son from the dead. There's nothing in the biblical record that suggests that that had happened. 
So how does, how does Abraham know that? Abraham hadn't seen that. But he believes it nonetheless. And God didn't give him all the details is what I'm saying here. He didn't work all that out. God just gave him a command and he was supposed to do it whether he understood the details of how God was going to accomplish that or not. And we, if we're going to be people of faith, we need to have that kind of faith. God doesn't always give us all the details of how things are worked out with his will. I tell parents sometimes, and, and certainly there's a lot to be said for in the disciplining process to explain what was the infraction, what was the violation, and why is this particular punishment suitable to that violation or that infraction. There's certainly a place for that, and I'm not in any way suggesting otherwise. But I also suggest this. Sometimes we need to tell our children things and follow up with nothing more than because I said so. Because I said so. And you say, why is that? Well, if you cultivate in your kids this notion that the only time authority is legitimate is when I understand that authority. And I understand what the authority is trying to accomplish. And once I have that understanding, then and only then will I obey it. What are they going to do when God does and he does tell us because I said so? You don't have to be a great student of the Bible to know that God doesn't always explain his will. You ever heard of Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we may do all the words of this law. So the Bible tells us right there, I'm not giving you everything. You don't know everything. We don't know everything about the will of God. What we know is what's revealed. That's enough. That's a lifetime worth of work right there. But the point being is God doesn't always explain all the details of his will. And that doesn't give us the right because we're in this enlightened age, in this intellectual age, in this scientific age. That doesn't give us the right to say, I don't understand it, therefore I will not obey. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. The Bible says, for we... For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. We trust God. God tells us something. And we may not be able to work all the details out. And God may not have given us all the details. And that doesn't give us any right to veto what God says. He says we walk by faith. We trust God whether we understand all the details or not. You may not all understand all the details about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Why did God do this? And why didn't God do this? And you may not understand uh, why God uh, prescribed gender roles in the family and in the church, although the Bible does give us some information on that. But whether you understand it all or not is irrelevant. <laughs> God doesn't call you to sit in judgment on his will. Hmm, yes, God, I, th I think this is good, and so I'll do this, and this is not good, so I won't. God doesn't ask us to do that. We don't even have the capability of doing that. What God demands that we do is trust. Trust. I mean, we, we, we believe our whole faith is built on something that the scientific community would say is an absolute impossibility. You ever think about that? Our entire faith is built on the rising of a dead man. You and I both know that doesn't happen. <laughs> 
The scientific community would say it cannot happen, and yet you and I have staked our entire lives on what the scientific community says is impossible, that a man rose from the dead. Why? We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't give us reasons to believe, and I'm not saying that God doesn't give us a basis for belief, and I'm not saying that God doesn't give us grounds for believing. He does. But we can't work all that. You, you tell me. Explain to me resurrection. <laughs> explain that to me. How does that happen? All I can tell you is that it did happen. And my entire life is built on the fact that that empty tomb was a testament to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We walk by faith, not by sight. We need to be really careful that in our faith, that it, just because we, we, we're so inclined to, to pursue things and, and want to understand things, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, and to the extent that we can find some pearls of wisdom embedded in the Scriptures, that's great. But, but sometimes... <laughs> From the pulpit, sometimes in classes, I see people mining stuff that is not there. <laughs> it's not there, brethren. It's not there. It's speculation. And, and, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't come by speculation. We, we don't need to add details that are not there. <laughs> That's not going to build anybody's faith. And maybe you think it makes a more interesting story, but we're not up here telling interesting stories. We're building faith in the hearts of people so they can please God. And so we need to stay within the record. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. We need to learn that trusting God or having faith is to trust God when we don't understand all the details. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. There is a, a system of, of, of knowledge, a body of knowledge called apologetics and evidences, and it's wonderful, and it's great, and I support it, and I've taught classes like that. I've preached sermons like that. But as we do that, we do need to understand that there's some limitations to that, right? Because right here he says, we understand by faith that God created everything that is. Ultimately, we understand by faith. You're not going to be able to answer every single potential question that anybody can raise about the creation of the world by God. And that's fine. That's fine. Because he says, ultimately, we understand by faith. Look, you weren't there. I wasn't there. Nobody was there. We've got to take God's record on that, right? Again, I'm not saying apologetics are bad. I love it. I study it. I'm not saying evidences are bad. I love it. I study it. Uh, but I ultimately want us to understand that the Bible is saying we understand these things by faith. I remember when I was younger, I spent a lot of time studying apologetics and evidences. I've got a lot of books uh, to that point still in my library, and I, and I love that stuff. But as I got older, I recognized some practical limitations. I was a husband. I was a father. I was an employee. And when you take all those responsibilities... I had limited time. And if I have limited time and I have a choice between spending a whole lot of time delving into the science, and I'm not a scientist, versus spending that time delving into the Word of God, I'll tell you which one I went with, the Word of God, because God tells me by faith I understand that He framed the worlds, okay? And again, no disrespect to that study or those who academically have pursued that and written books, all wonderful references. We need that stuff. But ultimately... We understand these things by faith. Don't be the kind of person that says, well, I don't see that. I, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. We trust God. 
even if we don't know all the details of his will. Give you a third point. We learn from the faith of Abraham that we must obey God even if we don't want to do what he tells us to do. We learn from the faith of Abraham that we must obey God even when we don't want to do what he told us to do. Go back to Genesis 22 again. Genesis chapter 22. And and notice how the Lord himself describes what he's asking Abraham to do. In Genesis 22.2. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Did you notice that? God didn't just say, take your son. He says, take your son, take your only son, whom you love, and kill him. Does anybody in this audience think that Abraham wanted to do that? Does anybody think that Abraham was just giddy? Oh, yeah, I get to kill my son. No, he didn't want to do that. And that didn't make him a bad guy either. Of course he didn't want to do that. But see, it didn't stop there. That's that's the problem a lot of people in the religious world, and maybe sometimes us. It stops there. God tells us to do something, and we say, I really don't want to do that, so I don't do it. I really don't want to teach the lost because I know if I put out there what the truth is, people, what they say, two things you can't talk about, religion and politics, right? People get upset. And so, yes, the preacher's telling me I need to be out sharing the word of God. And more importantly, God's word says I need to be sharing the word of God. But I know if I do that, I'm going to lose some friends. I'm going to lose some alliances. I'm going to lose some relationships. I'm going to lose some family members. I may not go as far in uh, the workplace. The politics are bad for me. And so uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I just don't want to do it. It's not a matter of not understanding it. It's not a matter of not knowing the details. I understand full. I just don't want to do it. Abraham didn't stop there. The fact that he didn't want to do it was irrelevant. He then, notwithstanding that, did what God called him to do. And that's biblical faith. That that we have to do some things that we don't want to do. We have to do some things that we're not excited about doing. I I tell, you know, people when we start talking about so many people in the world have decided that we can just kind of go through the scriptures and start taking stuff out we don't like (laughs) it. You know, I, I, that, that homosexuality, I don't like that. Let's just take it out. We'll just ignore it. I mean, that's essentially what they're doing. I don't like this exclusive, uh, uh, everybody has to come through Jesus. That's, that's really intolerant. And that's it's kind of bigoted. And that's just not really fair-minded. And so we'll just kind of write it out of the Scriptures. And I'm saying, okay, if we, if we can write stuff out of the Scriptures, if we're allowed to do that, can I take a shot at it? Because I'll tell you the one that I'm writing out, this turned out the cheap business. That's gone. Gone. If I have that chance, I do not like that. You do me wrong, I'm telling you what I want to do. I want to do you wrong. I'm going to show, I'm going to show you. So if we have the right to do that, let me have mine. I'm getting rid of it, turn the other cheek, but, but nobody has that. Nobody has that. Just because we don't want to do something, that's irrelevant. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, because it's interesting. It's in this area that we oftentimes have a really tough time doing what the Lord tells us to do even when we don't like it. Matthew chapter 10 Verses 34 through 39. Matthew, the 10th chapter, verses 34 through 39. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He says the gospel is going to create enemies even within our families. Even within our families. That we may pit a father against a son, a mother against a daughter. And he says this. If that bothers you so much that you can't do what I tell you to do, he says, Christianity is not for you. It's not for you. Don't, don't, don't even pretend. Just, just stay out. Don't sign up. Don't apply. Because you have to love me more than any of those other things. And clearly we see that with Abraham. Because we know the Lord says, you love this child. But he loved the Lord more. And had more faith in the Lord to do what is required, even though he didn't want to do it. You know, sometimes we see in churches far too often that parents, Christian parents, sometimes love their children more than they love the Lord. Because uh, you have a, a Christian a child that's wayward, that's doing things that are wrong, and the elders have to address it, have to get on them. And it's kind of like I was talking to, I've talked to several teachers. They, you may have noticed this. Maybe we've got some teachers here who can testify to this. But uh, teachers have often told me that, you know, there was a time that when, when a student got in trouble, then there was a united front uh, between the teacher and the parent. And, and they just believed, hey, if you got in trouble with school, the parent would stand behind the teacher and, and, and inflict, yeah, inflict punishment on the child based on the fact that the child disobeyed. And so maybe the child, and we're going way back now, maybe the child gets spanked in school and then comes home and gets spanked again. Why? Because you got spanked in school and you shouldn't have done that. There's kind of a unity or there was a unity among parents and children. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Because the parents many times rush to the defense of the children before they even have the facts. <laughs> Haven't even heard what the case is. Haven't heard the evidence. Oh, little Johnny would never do that. <laughs> little, little Sally would never do that. That's unfair. That's not right. Just come to their rescue. And you know what? Sometimes we do that in the church. We come to the rescue of our wayward children because the elders have the audacity to pull them aside and say, you're not living right. You've got to do something about this. And maybe it goes even further. Maybe it goes to the point where the elders have to withdraw from your wayward child. How do you respond to that? Get angry, get upset, push back on the elders, try to find some inconsistency. Well, y'all didn't deal with so-and-so this way. As a brother in Christ, had a daughter who was unfaithful. She was away for college. And once it, became to, it came to his attention that she was unfaithful and she'd been withdrawn from, from the local congregation, it was getting close to Thanksgiving time. And she called up and she was making arrangements to to come up to be with the family for Thanksgiving. You know what the father said? He said, don't come. He said, don't come. You're not living right. You've been withdrawn from. We're not, we're not having fellowship. We can't have fellowship. Now, the interesting thing is you'd be surprised how many brethren told him he was wrong and too harsh for doing that. Like somehow, I don't, I don't see it, but somehow there's an exception to 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Look over there real quick. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. 
Second Thessalonians verse 3, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. But they got an exception. Well, you, you, except for if it's your children. <laughs> it doesn't count. I missed that. Maybe that's in Second Opinions chapter 2, verse 1. But I missed it in the Scriptures. It's not there. And here's, here's what's the wondrous. And I know it doesn't always happen this way. And this doesn't prove that you should, and you should do what the Lord says regardless how it comes out. But in this particular situation, that wayward child came to her senses. And she is now as faithful as she could possibly be. Because he did what was right. Not what brethren thought was appropriate. What the scriptures required. Did he want to do that? Of course not. You, of course you haven't seen your child. You want your child to come. You want to sit down and laugh and share and have time. And you missed that time you were together. He wanted that just like any child, uh, any parent would. But he wanted to do what the Lord wanted him to do, regardless of how he felt about it. And he was vindicated in that by the fact that it happened exactly as it's intended to. You know, discipline is intended to bring people back to their senses. It's not just punishment for the sake of punishment. It's not just being arbitrary about it. It's designed to bring them back to their senses. And that's exactly what happened. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord's way. Let me give you a fourth point and lesson be yours. We also learn from the faith of Abraham, and this is going a little bit beyond this particular incident, but we learn from the faith of Abraham that faith is not static and needs to be continuously strengthened. Faith is not static and needs to be continually strengthened. Why did I say that? You read Genesis 22, and that is just the height of faith. I mean, it's just incredible. It blows our minds. Look at the faith of Abraham. Now, here's my question. Did Abraham always have that level of faith? On every single occasion in his life, did he always demonstrate that level of faith? Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Genesis the 12th chapter, verses 10 through 20. Faith is not static, and it must be continually strengthened. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Now, there was a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to well there. For the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when he was, chose, when he was close to entering Egypt. Now, listen to this. They said to Sarai's wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister that may be well with me for your sake that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Why? Because of Sarah, Abram's wife, or Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commended his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, can we establish something? Can we establish that Abraham, or Abram at this point, was deceptive? Can we establish that? And, and, and I don't say that lightly because I was in a Bible class where I made this point, and there's a brother tried to argue me down because he held Abram in such high esteem, he couldn't possibly countenance the fact that he was deceptive, and yet he was. I wanted to say, man, have you read the Bible? <laughs> Peter forsook the Lord, denied the Lord three times. David committed adultery and killed the man to cover it up. The Bible doesn't shy away from the warts of its heroes. Yes, Abraham's a hero. Yes, he's the father of faith. But on this occasion, he was deceptive. Now, here's the problem. In Genesis 22, 
He works out in his mind, yeah, I know I'm killing the son through whom all these promises are going to happen. That's all right. God will raise him from the dead. He doesn't even, he doesn't even have the son yet. So if God has told you you're going to have descendants and they're going to be a mighty nation and they're going to occupy the land of Canaan and through your descendants all the nations of earth are going to be blessed and you don't have any children, what do you know? You're going to live. <laughs> you're going to live long enough to have children. And yet despite that, he's like, hey, hey, you're beautiful. And when they see that you're my wife, they're going to try to kill me. So why don't you just tell half-truth? Yeah, just tell them that you're my sister. Where was that Genesis 22 faith? Wasn't there. Which tells me what? Faith is not static. We have to continually replenish our faith. Don't say, well, I obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my faith is on the plateau. I've got another, enough faith to get me all the way to heaven. What you need is a continual strengthening of that faith. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why you hear preachers and teachers say, get in that word every day. Because just because you're on top of the mountain with your faith at one moment doesn't mean you won't be down in the valley with your faith another moment. Faith is not static and needs to be continually strengthened. And so those are some lessons we can learn from Abraham. Wonderful person, wonderful example. But we need to understand that we need to make those lessons true for us. Faith is active. We must act upon our faith. Faith means trusting God even when we don't know all the details of his will. Faith means that we have to obey God even when we don't want to do it. And faith is not static. It needs to be continually strengthened. Thank you for your time and for your attention. You're now dismissed. Not permanently, just for a break. <laughs> don't want anybody going home. <laughs>